Today's scripture is Genesis 4, 1 through 15. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought to the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. And I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Well, that's a pleasant passage. Maybe we should have stuck with Genesis 14. Stefan told me that story earlier, so I thought I'll take it as a challenge and try work it in a little bit later. So we'll see how that goes. And for anyone that's as avid a biblical scholar as me, you will know that this story is also the first time that alcohol is mentioned in the Bible. Because Cain killed Abel. Never mind. And Cain killed Abel. Cain's the type of drink. Anyway, uh, never mind. So I'm not going to focus on this whole story. And I'm kind of using this story as like a springboard to kind of zip through what I want to do today. And today's going to be a whole lot of scripture reading. I think I said that last week, but more scripture reading than preaching. So I'm hoping that just by kind of like looking at a bunch of things, this is going to be just a, a different way of kind of seeing what I think God wants us to look at today. And it's also a message that's not going to be any kind of like light bulb moment for us, I think. If we don't already know this stuff, then I think that could be a problem. But also at the same time, I think it's a good message to hear again, and maybe the specifics of the message. I think the Holy Spirit's going to give us something to take home. So I think it is going to be worthwhile. But the part that I'm really focusing on is just verse 8 and 9. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then this interaction that, that he has with God. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And I know growing up as a kid in Sunday school, like when we heard this story, that question kind of implies that he's not his brother's keeper. And I think that was something that confused me as a kid because I never really understood it. Am I my brother's keeper? Like it implies that he's not. And then God answers in verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so two things we're going to look at tonight. The first is that question, am I my brother's keeper? And the second part of it is, if I'm my brother's keeper, then who is my brother? And what does being his keeper mean? What is God calling us to do? And in answer to the first question, I think God's answer there is pretty definitive to him. Am I 
my brother's keeper, Cain asking God, and God's answer, like your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. You were meant to look after him. You were meant to be blood. You were meant to be a safe place for him. So I believe the answer is yes. Yes, you are. So am I my brother's keeper? If so, who's my brother and what does being his keeper or her keeper mean? Let's pray. Father, I just pray that as we look at your word tonight, as we look at these questions, as we try and make sense of what you're saying to us, that you will just speak strongly to our hearts, that we'll have a general message that is a great message to take home. But at the same time, that while I speak, your Holy Spirit will just be kind of touching, kind of revealing, just prodding, highlighting the person or the people or the families or the issues that I'm being called to be a keeper towards. Who is my brother? And what does being a keeper to him mean? This is something that we as the body of Christ have been called towards. This brief story, this brief interaction between Cain, Abel, and then Cain and God is, I believe, symbolic of the bigger story and the bigger picture that threads throughout the Bible. And that Jesus picks up and continues, that Paul picks up and continues. And so I just pray, Father, that you'll speak to us tonight, that you'll make things clear, that you will... Let us leave here tonight with a strong sense of what we are called to do and what we need to do and who we need to be doing that with or for or to. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the couple of Old Testament passages I want to look at are in the book of Ezekiel. So if you want to look at those, you can. The first one is chapter 22, verse 30. And these are just kind of continuing with the theme of that first question, am I my brother's keeper? Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30 and this is where Israel is surrounded by a whole bunch of enemy nations and talking to the prophet there's just this one verse in verse 30 it says I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it but I found none and so just the sense that there's this land that needs protection there's this wall that needs to be built god is looking out he's looking for someone who will stand in the gap and i just love that phrase i love the picture that it gives being somebody that stands in the gap for someone else and this is like quite a negative passage because he looks for it and he finds nothing and then a little bit later in chapter 33 verse 1 to 9 it's a very similar story the word of the lord came to me son of man speak to your countrymen and say to them when i bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman. And he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people... And the sword comes and takes the life of one of them. That man will be taken away because of his sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways. That wicked man will die from his sin. And I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will be saved yourself. And then again in chapter 34, same kind of story using a different analogy. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? 
You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. And so just two Old Testament stories that kind of give the image and the picture of what this idea of being a brother's keeper is about. And the first is the idea of the trumpeter who stands guard and when the enemy is approaching, sounds the trumpet. And then there's the sense that each person has their own accountability. So if you hear the trumpet sound and you choose to react, you'll save your life. If you hear the sound and you choose to do nothing, you'll be killed. And if you are killed but you heard the trumpet sound, then the guy who blows the trumpet is safe because he did what he was meant to do. But if the trumpeter is not doing his job, if the watchman is not watching and not warning and not calling out when there's danger, and danger befalls the people, then the people will die for their sin, but the watchman is held accountable. And there's the sense that as the trumpeter, your job was a job of warning, of protecting, of caring for, of looking after. And then takes that story just a step further with the idea and the picture of the sheep, that they are these shepherds, leaders perhaps in the community, and the idea is that they're meant to be looking after the sheep, and yet their whole focus is just completely on themselves. And so the sheep are kind of left to their own devices and some of them wander off and the shepherds take full advantage of the sheep using their wool and all those kind of things. But the sheep are left to themselves. And then the story carries on with the shepherds and the sheep from verse 11, which says this, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As the shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep, and make them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And he just carries on with the same idea and picture, but further. And there's just kind of the sense of security, the sense of hope that the Lord, the Sovereign Lord, has given people charge, has given people a mission. And so there's trumpeters that have been put out there. There's shepherds to look after the sheep. And even if everyone fails to do their job, then there's still hope for the sheep because God is like, I'm not going to let my people fall. If the shepherds are not doing the job, I will come and take care of them. I will do the job of the shepherds. And so there's the sense of hope that even if the plans God has put into place using us fail, that we're not going to be left by the wayside, that people, that God has a plan, that God's plan is full of justice and mercy and that at the end of the day, his will is going to be done. And so I think that's an exciting thing. And I think that just kind of leads into this idea of, am I my brother's keeper? 
And as we look at some New Testament passages, and like I say, these are a little bit scattered and they bounce between the two sides of are we meant to be a brother's keeper and how are we meant to be a brother's keeper? I think a lot of these passages you're going to know, but I just want to identify some really obvious things that God says. The first one, Matthew chapter 22, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And that last verse just brings it together. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the whole of Scripture hangs on these two things. The two things of loving God and loving people. And in that passage, one of the people that we are meant to be keeper of is identified in the sense of loving our neighbor. Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan and the idea that everybody around us is our neighbor. The neighbor is not necessarily the person that lives next to us, but the neighbor is the person in need. Jesus would take that idea of looking out for people and take it to a much kind of deeper um, level in Matthew 5 from verse 43. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there was an amazing photo going around Facebook of the, I think it was the Palestinian kind of uncle type figure and the Israelite lighty. Um, the little kid, and just that sense of kind of calling out that hate is never going to be the solution for hate. Hate only begets hate. And it was just this beautiful pose of like these two warring tribes and factions living in the same country and just the mess that is in Israel and Palestine and just a person from two different families just like embracing each other with the idea that the only way that those kind of broken relationships, the only way that that turmoil, the only way that enemies can be overturned is only ever going to be through love. Hatred just always incites, it always just makes the crisis bigger. The only way that hatred can ever possibly stop conflict is if you totally eliminate the other side. And it's only not there because it's not there anymore. And so just this idea of Jesus saying, like, this thing is revolutionary. Not only are you to love your neighbors, the people you might be able to recognize as people in need around you, but those people that you would directly recognize as people that are your enemies either people that you really don't like or you hate them or they've done something really horrible to you or maybe just people that have something against you. There was something that you did or something that you said or, or maybe they just chose not to like you because of some misunderstanding or whatever it is. And the picture of the kingdom, am I my brother's keeper, is this idea of just turning that thing on its head. And I chatted about this with the youth this morning, just the idea that the more you love someone and respond to hate or anger or bitterness in love, the more chance that love has to erode whatever is coming your way and so eventually the hope is that your enemy becomes your friend the enemy is realized as the one who is your brother as with the good samaritan the enemy can be realized as the one who takes time to spend time with you to bandage your wounds to put you in a hospital and just make sure that everything is okay and so those are just two examples of who are the people that we are meant to be keeper of Matthew 18, verse 10 to 14. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. 
What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. And Jesus tells the same parable with the ten coins, and he tells the same parable with the prodigal son, the idea that one goes away, and that there's this idea of just searching and waiting and being ready and doing everything possible to ensure the return. And so as we start to look at ideas of what does it mean to be my brother's keeper, is it a static thing of just kind of overlooking and just keeping an eye on him when he's there or when he's wandering away, when he's left the herd and gone off on his own, does it mean actually setting out, actually putting some time and energy and effort into the search, into making sure that that person is found and safe and secure? Matthew 18, another well-known story where Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And he gives this story. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The unmerciful servant, the idea that mercy is shown in light of the mercy that has been received, in the way that God has forgiven us, in the way that God has looked after us, in the way that God has showered us with love and forgiveness and redemption. So, out of that, out of that resource, out of that abundance, we are called to be keepers of those around us. We are called to forgive debts. We are called to go and make peace. And I think that story just highlights the extravagance of God and just the extravagance of what it means to be a keeper, to be a parent, to be a shepherd. Luke 9.23, which I think I use in every preach I ever do, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Just the idea of that starting point again of denying yourself, like if that is the point where I start, then it frees me up to actually look after other people. It frees me up for the person that I'm being the keeper of to kind of take center view, for me to lift up somebody above myself, for me to let go of things that are bringing division between me and this person and to look for things that can really help combine us, bring us together, pour into them. And then the second thing is a thought that I had, which I don't know if I've had before, but it was just really significant in light of this, was the idea of taking up your cross, that in one sense, Jesus' death, had no personal benefit for him. There's the idea and the understanding that it makes us right with God and that was a great thing for God to have. But like practically, 
Like Jesus goes to the cross for all of us. He goes, his death is given for what he can give to other people. And that is like a bigger sense of what it is all about. And just being able to stop for a moment and realize that that, that is what Jesus did, that he sacrificed everything, that it wasn't about him gaining anything, but the benefit was all about us. The idea of Jesus sending out his disciples at the end of Matthew in chapter 28, where he meets them on the mountain. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I spoke recently about God's will, and a lot of this stuff kind of overlaps. That part of being the keeper of those around us is doing those things, is making disciples of other people, leading them to God, having a moment of baptism, seeing them through that transformation into new life, and then walking through with them, teaching them everything that Jesus has taught us. And I think I shared this once before, but one of the biggest revelations I had about that passage was that I'd grown up with the idea, go make disciples, that it felt like something we're doing with other Christians. And somebody once got up and spoke with the idea that we can actually disciple non-Christians. We can actually walk a route or a road with our non-Christian friends that leads them closer to the direction of Jesus, that we can disciple them towards Jesus. Somebody that's made a commitment, someone that's in relationship with God, we disciple them in Jesus. But all of our non-Christian friends, as we give them a picture of what Jesus looks like, as we show them what a new kingdom looks like, as we show them the upside-downness of loving your enemies, of forgiving everyone 70 times 7, of just grace and mercy and just things that seem ridiculous by the standards of the world, we are discipling people into kind of moving towards Jesus. We're showing them, we're giving them reasons why following Jesus might be a good thing. And so that's something that we can do as we look after people, as we are the keepers of our brothers and the other people around us. In terms of looking at other people that we are called to be keepers of, James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And the idea there, which is brought out in Matthew 25, which I have a little bit later, but the idea of reaching out and looking after especially those who don't have the capacity to look after themselves. And especially in these times, orphans, people that had lost their parents and widows, people that had lost kind of the breadwinner in the house, were people that were very vulnerable in society, that those are some of the people that we are called to be keepers of, to look out for, to watch out for. And then James takes it a step further in chapter 2, verse 14, where he says this, and talking about the whole idea of faith and works. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And just a reminder to us that how are we our brother's keeper? Like we, speaking about things is a thing that we jump to, but acting them out is, is sometimes something that comes um, second place or is a little bit slower. And in the book of James, like just highlighting the fact that faith by itself is nothing. If it's not changing someone's situation, if there's somebody physically hungry and you kind of tell them you wish them well, but you walk away and you've got the capacity of feeding them, then it's just saying that that's nothing. Faith by itself if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And so as we look after those around us, we need to make sure that our deeds are accompanying our faith, that our deeds are a reflection and an acting out of our faith. Matthew 25, as I mentioned, the sheep and the goats, and I won't read the whole thing, but just some of those people that are mentioned in that passage. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Again, like who are the people that we're meant to be keeping? And I find with this list and maybe with some other ideas in the Bible that it can really move quickly to a place of being overwhelmed. Like how do I keep care of all those people? How do I look after all those people? If I just take the time to kind of get involved and get connected to someone in prison, it's such a kind of a mission and red tape and visiting and writing and all that kind of thing. Like how am I supposed to look after the naked? And if all my focus is on that, then how can I look after the homeless? And just the needs of the world can be overwhelming to us. But as we start to realize that this is done in the context of the body, and as we start to look around us, like even now, and see that we're not alone in this, that as somebody who has a particular gift or a particular connection maybe with people in prison ministry, and they do that thing very well, then we bless them and we encourage them while they do that. And, and we find our spot, whether it's helping the homeless or, or those in trafficking or refugees or whatever it is. And I don't think it matters so much which of these things we're doing, but just that this needs to be our DNA. This is what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody that has a heart for people that are in need, that are keeping and are being keepers to those around us. And so the list is not so much kind of specific as it is just leading us towards the things that we need to do and the things we need to be being. And then Mark 10, it takes it to another group that people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. And then in chapter 9, verse 42, he ramps that up a level. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. And so the sense of children being just another group to add to that list, but the idea of us being responsible with the way that we live our lives, us being responsible with what we teach, us being responsible with the examples that we're giving, because we can be so impressionable, we can have such an effect in those people looking up to us and how the penalty is quite stiff, how Jesus cares so deeply about children and says like teaching is such an important thing. So we've got to be so careful about that. But there's another group of people that we need to look after. 
And then just the idea of Paul as well. Paul was somebody who just advocated the same thing. And Timothy, we've got the example of Timothy as one of the people that kind of hung around with Paul. And Paul just totally built into his life. In 1 Timothy 1.18, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Paul mentored a whole bunch of people. He took people with him on his journeys. And so he was constantly demonstrating things live and then sending people out to carry on the work or leaving people behind to be ministering, to be sharing the word of God. And we've got this beautiful start to the letter of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so just one picture of one of the letters that Paul wrote to the various churches that he founded. If Paul was asked the question, am I my brother's keeper or am I my church's keeper? then he would have definitely said yes. We can see from his readings, we can see from the way he lived his life through the book of Acts especially, just the amount of passion and hunger that he had for the different churches that God had led him to. This idea that he was responsible for teaching them and training them. And if he couldn't be there, that he would send his disciples, that he would send people that he knew and trusted with the mission to carry it on. We can see it by the fact that he spent so much time visiting the different churches, so much time spending time with them, even in prison, it was still on his heart that he needed to look out for them and reach out for them. And so am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely. Who is my brother? It is the people around me. It is the people that God places in my life. It is the opportunities that exist in contexts that I see as I'm faithful to God, as I'm just walking out and living my life. And I just want to finish with Genesis chapter 14, which is the one that Stefan thought I was preaching on. I found something here which I thought was really rad. So from 8 to 12, it says this. And this is Abraham's time. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, you may have heard of those places, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon against Kedolamleoma, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. And so this random story with all these random names that are really long and hard to pronounce, but right at the end, there's a name that most of us might be a little bit familiar with. It's like the name Lot. And I think most of us, if you know anything about Lot, you know the story of how his wife was turned into a pillow of salt. But here is like a lesser known story that there's this battle that happens and four kings against five kings and this whole war happens and the people that Lot is on the side of 
get taken away. Lot and his possessions all get taken into battle. And so take the question a step further. What about my nephew's keeper? I just want to read to you from 13 to 16. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, Abram the Hebrew. So this is before he had his name changed. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the woman and the other people. And so we've got this question, am I my brother's keeper? When it relates to Cain, what happens if it means that my brother gets more praise, more recognition? Abel was the one whose sacrifice was more pleasing to God because he gave the best of what he had. What happens when it's somebody else? What happens when it's somebody we love, but they getting the praise and the recognition? Does that still hold? And then with the story of Moses, what happens if it costs me time? What happens if it costs me money? What happens if potentially it costs me and people that I love my lives? Like, how far do we take this thing? And I just thought that's such a powerful example. Moses heard that his nephew was in trouble and immediately he springs into action because there's no doubt. He doesn't go and wrestle with God like, God, am I Lot's keeper? It's like, this is family. This is my brother. This is my son or the son of my brother, whatever it is. This is what I need to act on. And so just that idea, the, the passion that is in that, the commitment to living that out, I feel like the story really illustrates that. Let's close our eyes. And I feel like that was a really simple message. Maybe some of you want to go and ask for your money back at the door. But I do feel that there's a really specific thing that God is wanting to do and has already been doing in our lives tonight. And so I just want you to take a minute where you are. And I just want you to invite the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, just quietly where you are, who is my brother tonight? If you agree with me on the premise that yes, it's obvious. I am my brother's keeper. All through scripture, that is what has been said to us from my actual brother to my neighbor to my enemy to those who can't really fend for themselves to, to those who struggle to live to those who are too young. Like if I say yes, that I'm meant to be their keeper, that I'm meant to be the trumpeter, that I'm meant to be the one who stands in the gap, that I'm meant to be the shepherd that really looks after that flock, that really cares for what God has given me then who is my brother tonight? And as we close off in prayer, I want to invite you to speak out a name of somebody that hopefully the Holy Spirit has revealed to you while you're sitting here. Just as you think about it, some name comes to mind and maybe it is a relative. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family you know that I need. Maybe it is someone in one of those categories of being hungry or thirsty or sick or in prison or naked or a stranger. Maybe it's someone at Regen. Maybe it's someone in this community that you feel could really use encouragement or mentoring or some love. Who is your brother tonight? Who is your brother for this next week, for this next month? And so just where you are, I want you to speak out loudly as a sign of commitment, as a sign of prayer, as a sign of admonition. God, this is somebody that I'm recognizing in front of the body that this person is my brother and I am going to be their keeper. So if that's something that you feel comfortable with, just in your own time, I'm going to leave a bit of time for this. Just speak out a name and we'll just close with this prayer.
I realize this is a bit weird and uncomfortable and unusual, and I'm okay with that. So I'm going to give this a little more time. I'm going to invite Jane to come up, and she's going to lead us forward in worship. So in the next couple of seconds, if you still have a name, if, if something's been tugging at your mind and you want to speak it out, go for it. As we go into worship, as is always the case, feel free to come forward and, and take part in communion. Being reminded of the visual of Jesus dying on the cross being a very real time when he stood in the gap on our behalf, when he let his body be broken and he let his blood be shed. And we celebrate that. We do it in remembrance of him. So in your own time, come forward and take part of that. And so feel free if there's still a gap and you still have a name you want to speak out. Speaking out a name often feels like such a powerful thing, taking something hidden and bringing it to light and just declaring it. It's up to you what you do with that, but, but it does feel like it has some power in just getting it out there. Mm-hmm.